Well, good morning, everyone. You're supposed to say good morning. Thank you. It's really great to be with you this morning. First Sunday of a new year. And uh, we always love the opportunity to come and uh, be part of the Humeridge family for a Sunday. We were here for the Christmas Eve celebration. Thank you, Brendan, wherever you've gone, and the team. That was just a special evening. So a new series, a message for the church. And visiting speakers have been invited this month to come and share their thoughts on the role of the church and Christians might play in today's society. Where do we need to be encouraged? Where do we need to lift our game, said Brendan's email invitation. Choose your own topic, he said. Woohoo! Free reign. <laughs> well, no, actually, um, the thought of deciding what the church, what this church needs to hear in 2024 sounded way, way above my pay grade, I have to tell you. So rather than share my own ideas on what might encourage and challenge the church here at Hume Ridge, I thought it might be best to go to someone far more qualified, far more authoritative than me, what he thought the church needed to hear 2,000 years ago when he wrote to the Christian communities in Asia Minor, what we call today modern-day Turkey. And I'm referring to the Apostle Peter. And so please find one Peter in your Bible, digital, hard copy, whatever you bought this morning, get ready to follow along. It'll be on the screen as well. If you bought a hard copy, you'll find one Peter towards the back of the New Testament after James, and it's just before Second Peter, okay? Just a little hint, I've got lots of experience, I'm very old. But I want to explain quickly why this ancient letter, about 20-minute read, I reckon, is somehow relevant and helpful to you good folks at Hume Ridge today and going forward. I want to start at chapter one, good place. And we read this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, been practising that for hours, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Hope you noticed the little Trinitarian reference there. So who is Peter writing to? Firstly, he's writing to God's elect. God himself has called these readers. Six times in this letter, Peter refers to them as God's, as, as having been chosen by God. I, for those of you who know a little bit of theology, I have some good Calvinist friends who sing that last song, I've been elected to follow Jesus, not I've decided, sorry, theology. Let's move on. And we'll come back to this idea shortly. But secondly, his readers, you'll see, are also referred to as exiles. They're migrants. They're refugees, if you like. Somewhere else has been home for them. And as well as the locals in these communities, there will have been Jewish immigrants, Greek settlers, ordinary Roman citizens sent to colonise these new towns and cities as part of the expanding Roman Empire. 
They speak different languages. They've got different customs and behaviours. They've got different religions in these communities. And in amongst these communities, there are little groups of Jesus' followers have formed. And there'll be Jews and Greeks and Romans and locals who are part of that. Probably some Romans escaping the persecution from Rome. And if you read this letter, it quickly becomes apparent that these small Christian communities are under intense pressure. They're experiencing a level of persecution. It's not life-threatening yet. That'll come under Nero later. But they are subject to ridicule and to mockery. They are the odd ones out. They're a minority. They don't quite fit in to these communities. Now, let me illustrate that the, uh, on the screen, there's an image of some graffiti that it was found in 1857, scratched into the wall plaster of an ancient Roman ruin. Scholars reckon it was about 200 AD. It's thought to be probably the earliest non-Christian image of the cross. To help you see it more clearly, uh, on the, someone's done a sort of a stencil of the original. And you can see, if you look closely, it's a picture of a man with a donkey's head on a cross. And the scribble underneath, which I'm sure you've all worked out by now, says, Alexamenos worships his God. Do you get it? It's ridicule. It's sarcasm. It's a put down. And it's an example, I think, of the sorts of uh, experience that these communities had of being ridiculed and mocked. And so as Peter writes, his big concern is this. Will these Christians stay faithful to Jesus? Will they keep following him in the face of ridicule and persecution? Will they keep following him, as we've said today, in uncertain times when the going gets tough? Will they keep following him when people say to, him, say to them, your God is like a donkey on a Roman cross? I'm hoping you're starting to see how Peter's letter might help us to think about the church here in 2024. Because we live in diverse cultural settings where we're the minority, different cultures, different languages, different religions. But we also live in uncertain times. Like everyone else, we're experiencing things like the cost of living pressures, work and study difficulties, family tensions, relationship breakdown health issues, not to mention the ever-heightening global tensions that we all experience. But on top of that, though, increasingly, I think, I don't want to overstate this, but I think Christians are regarded as a little bit odd, a little bit weird, not really up with the current thinking, slow to adopt the spirit of the age, what one blogger called the secular age, not the secular age, but the secular age. We are square pegs in round, round holes. Feeling encouraged this morning? Everybody okay? <laughs> you know, just by being here this morning in this church building does make you just a little bit old-fashioned, a little bit quaint, out of step with many of the people who you mix with on your front lines. I want to suggest this morning that whenever we face times of uncertainty, whenever we are stretched, 
whenever we feel a little bit uncomfortable, a bit out of our depth, the question for us is the same as Peter puts to his ancient readers. Will you continue to be a disciple of Jesus? Or to put it another way, what can we be learning about following Jesus in this situation at this time with these people? We haven't been here before, 2024. We haven't been here before. So what can we learn about being a disciple right here, right now? Does that make sense? Because if I've committed my life to following Jesus, I want to follow in his footsteps. I want my life to be patterned on his life. I want my life to mirror his words, his ways, his works. His life is a template for my life. And every one of us here is going into uncharted waters in 2024. There will be challenges, opportunities, contexts that we're not even aware of. But as Christians, followers of Jesus, the fundamental question I want to suggest to you this year is, how can I go deeper in following Jesus in an uncertain future on my front lines this year? I want to give you two quick examples. So the young people here, because I really get down with the cool kids. Young people, you face extraordinary challenges. Some of you will be transitioning to a new school, a new year level. I was talking to Willow earlier this morning. She's heading to, uh, down to Brisbane to the university. Your digital natives embedded in social media. You're exploring relationships. You have freedoms and opportunities unknown to previous generations. What will it look like for you to follow Jesus in a new school at your university or TAFE or in a new job? What will it look like for you to have your identity shaped by Jesus rather than TikTok, Instagram, Facebook or whatever the current one is? What will you be learning this year about self-control, about kindness, about patience, about loving those who might actually ridicule you for your faith? Second example I'm more familiar with, people in my generation. As you wrangle with emerging health issues, as you're caught between caring for older relatives and the grandkids, as you think about how you're going to use all that spare time you're supposed to have, what will it look like for you to follow Jesus in 2024? What are you going to be learning about patience, about joy in suffering, about self-discipline at a stage of life where your health starts to fail, about when your time is more flexible and you're less accountable for the use of it? The good old days seem to be gone. Well, Peter's passionate plea is, whatever happens, can you just keep following Jesus? I know that these are going to be challenging and difficult and uncertain times, but can you please stay focused on him? So, how does Peter do this? Well, how does Peter encourage his readers to stay in step with Jesus rather than conform to the age around them. Well, I've identified four pointers, I think, from Peter's letter 
I hope you go home and read 1 Peter later. I've just picked out the good bits, well, the bits I like. Four things. First of all, Peter says, remember your calling. First Peter encourages his readers to remember that. So let's read verses 3 to 5, I think it is, yes. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now try and just think for a moment how you'd react to those opening verses when you hear them or you read them, had them read to you for the first time in your little house church there somewhere in Asia Minor, living on the margins of society, under increasing pressure to conform, wondering if the very act of meeting together will somehow raise further questions, ridicule, shame. It's interesting to me that Peter doesn't immediately start with the challenges and the circumstances they face. He mentions them in verse 6, though for a little while, he may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, but rather he starts with the big picture and he reminds them of what God has done for them in Christ. Hey, you have been given a privileged place in history. You're chosen. You've been elected. You've been given new birth, a living hope, an imperishable inheritance. You are part of a bigger story that stretches to the end of time itself when God will make all things right. Can you imagine just for a moment how encouraging those words would be to exiles who've lost everything? Their land, their property, their security is all gone. They're enduring daily insults. Future is clouded. And then Peter says, hey, hey, remember your calling. You've been reborn. You have a secure inheritance that can never be taken away from you. It will never perish, spoil or fade. Now, some of you know exactly what Peter is talking about here. Apologies if I say Paul occasionally. He doesn't get a look in today, but, you know, the memory it's going. Some of you know what he's talking about. You've come to Australia as refugees. You've left everything behind. You know what it feels like to be in exile in a foreign land. Some of you are from First Nations background and you know what it feels like to be in exile in your own land. And others of you, you're thinking back to times, those golden days, when the church and when faith were held in high esteem and high regard, where you weren't ridiculed. But it doesn't doesn't feel like home anymore, does it? Whatever your background this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, Peter's first piece of advice is to stand back. Take a look at the bigger picture, the broader perspective. Remember your calling. You've been reborn into the family of God and you've got brothers and sisters around you to challenge you and cheer you on. At a time in our society when there's an absolute epidemic of hopelessness and despair and a lack of identity and purpose, You know who you are. You have a living hope that's been guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. And you have an inheritance that one 
scholar says, is untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. So my first encouragement for you in 2024, if you want to develop greater resilience in uncertain times, is just to go deeper with Jesus. Develop a deeper understanding of the love and the grace extended to you for your, in your rebirth, your living hope and your inheritance. I came across a blog by a pastor of over 40 years, a guy called Chris Green. And he was writing about how he changed over that period of time, 40 years. And I was struck by these words. He said, I hope I'm less confident, more Christ confident. I hope I'm less impressed with myself. I hope I'm more aware of the wonderful coherence of Christian truth, even as I am aware of my partial grasp of it. I'd love to say the same thing next year, that I know more, even though I still have a partial grasp of all that God has done in calling me. Better move on. Secondly, Peter encourages his readers to think about, to understand their identity as God's chosen people. And he uses a whole bunch of metaphors. Those of you who know the, let, the, the letter well will know he picks up these Old Testament pictures early in chapter 2. He says they're living stones. They're a royal priesthood. They're a holy nation. They're God's special possession. And some of you are starting to sing it in your head. And then in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we read this. He goes back to this idea of being exiled. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that, though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Foreigners and exiles... Two metaphors that speak directly to their current situation. It's almost as if Peter's saying, look, look, I know it's tough to embrace your situation. I know you feel out of place. I know you don't feel at home. You're not fitting in. You're suffering all kinds of trials. But hey, that's how it's always been for the people of God. This is normal. According to Peter, they are foreigners and exiles both physically and spiritually. Yes, you are living in the day-to-day -day world of Asia Minor, but your real home is somewhere else. In the meantime, you're to go about living in ways that ultimately bring glory to God. Don't mess with sin. It'll ruin you. It'll ruin your reputation. Do good stuff, good deeds. Now, I'm sure that Peter is reflecting here on Jeremiah's advice uh, to the Jews living in Babylon about 650 years earlier. Some of you will remember the situation. The brightest and the best young people, young Jews, had been deported to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar's armies. It's about 1,200 kilometres from their home in Jerusalem. And these exiled people are in despair. They are desperately homesick. It really sucks if you're in the wrong place with the wrong people at the wrong time in a wrong culture. But some false prophets have come and told them, don't panic, you'll be back in Jerusalem, you'll be back home in no time. However, Jeremiah, writing for Jerusalem, knows better and he tells them to forget it. Don't get your hopes up. Jeremiah is sometimes called the weeping prophet. What a surprise. 
He says, you won't be back home for 70 years. What he's really saying to his people who read is, you're going to die in Babylon, not home in Jerusalem, worshipping Yahweh with your own people. Jeremiah has a habit of not sugarcoating things. So what should they do? How should they live in Babylon? These words will be familiar to many of you. Jeremiah says this, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those in exile. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Do you see how Peter reflects Jeremiah? Seek the peace and prosperity of the city, says Jeremiah. Live good lives amongst the pagans, says Peter. And as you read Peter's letter, he unpacks what this might look like in terms of both suffering and submission. Remarkably, it seems to me, he says you're to submit to the horrible, nasty Roman government of the day, for heaven's sake. You know, pay your taxes. Don't drive your chariot beyond the speed limit. Dare I say, follow the health advice, that could get me into trouble. And it means you should also expect and accept suffering without retaliation, no revenge. When you are bullied and harassed or unjustly accused, don't fight back. Give people a piece of your mind as you rip something off on social media. Don't demand your rights, just keep avoiding sin and doing good deeds is Peter's advice if you read the whole of the letter. Now, the problem for foreigners and exiles is they get homesick. And these guys are homesick. They long for where they've come from or, in a sense, where they're going to. And the danger of homesickness is it can distract us from the here and now. It can make us want to escape into Christian ghettos where we feel safe and secure from the nasty, nasty world out there. Things are not like they used to be, so when we head to our front lines, we just keep our heads down and our faith hidden. Or we can just fall into apathy, just waiting it out till Jesus comes again or we depart this mortal coil, whichever comes first. We just escape from the world forever. But Peter will not let his readers do that. Did you see that? There's to be no hiding, no retreating, no keeping their faith private in order to avoid conflict. They are to live good lives amongst the pagans. Lives of compassion and integrity, for example. You see, it's actually the same for us. When we gather on Sundays, it must not be to escape, to sing lovely songs, to hear hopefully interesting words that actually numb us from the daily realities of our front lines. Sundays are to get us ready for Monday. A mate of mine, Dave Benson, puts it this way. Sunday, he says, is a springboard for action that begins when we're on our knees for our neighbours, praying for their needs and practically serving the common good with all the strength we've got. This isn't, Sunday, this isn't about just us. 
It's a call to seek justice for all, starting with the most marginalised in our communities, the widow, the single mum, the lonely kid, the migrant, the ex-con, the refugee. So can I encourage us to follow, Jesus, follow Peter and Jeremiah's advice in 2024 in our uncertain times? What does it look like to seek the peace and prosperity of the Toowoomba region? Let's get out there and model the upside-down values of King Jesus as we try to persuade those on our front lines that there is indeed a better story than the idea that we are simply random collections of atoms and molecules cast adrift in a meaningless and purposeless universe. So you might as well eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. Won't be easy. There will be difficult decisions at times. There will be times when we will fail, sometimes when we will succeed, but it's little progress we'll feel. We know that we are foreigners and exiles, but we will be determined to pattern our lives on Jesus. We'll be careful not to demand that others do things our way, follow our rules, but rather we will seek to live in a way that generates curiosity and provokes questions, as well as at times maybe ridicule and resentment. And then as Peter's letter progresses, he starts to flesh out what this might look like in terms of how we engage with unbelievers and how we care for one another as fellow believers. So the last two things I want to explore. First of all, be thoughtful in the way that you witness. How should foreigners and exiles engage with their families and people on their front lines who don't know Jesus, who don't share their faith? What's the appropriate posture? If we're not to get hiding in some sort of Christian ghetto or simply, on the other hand, ram the gospel down people's throats at every opportunity, how should we do this? Well, some beautiful advice, I think, in 1 Peter 3, 15 to 17. He says this, but in your hearts... Revere Christ as Lord. Did you see that? Jesus is always to be our first priority. Always be prepared to give a reason, sort of give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope, that living hope we heard about earlier, that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, your good behaviour in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. At a time when there are many voices crying out for Christians to aggressively express their convictions, to decry the loss of Christian influence in the public square, to sort of yearn for some sort of golden age, we could just get Christians back in power, if we could just be calling the shots. You know, Peter's advice sounds somehow different to me. Don't hide your faith, but don't demand a hearing either, says Peter. Just be ready to speak up, to share your faith, to give an answer to the questions that people put to you and do it gently, courteously, Show respect for other people's journey. Listen to people. Hear their story. Can't help thinking that Jesus, Peter's advice reflects Jesus' talk when he talks about salt and light, I think. 
being in the community, living the values of the kingdom and shining a light in dark places. And when others badmouth you, it's sort of, well, turn the other cheek. Be prepared to suffer, but make sure that your suffering is a result of doing good rather than your own stupidity, rudeness or lack of common decency towards those who disagree with you. Peter's letter is actually full of great advice in terms of the posture we should adopt on our front lines. A bit earlier in chapter 3, he says this, and I'm using the message version. Summing up, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. Uh, That goes for all of you, no exceptions. No retaliation, no sharp-tongued sarcasm. Instead, bless. That's your job. To bless, you'll be a blessing and you'll also get a blessing. So in 2024, let's resolve to bring these attitudes to our witnesses. We engage with people who do not know Jesus on our front lines, in our families perhaps, in our workplaces and on the margins. Final point. Finally, Peter tells us and talks about loving and serving your faith community, people who belong to God already. So he calls his readers to think carefully, think carefully about how they are to love and serve their fellow believers. And we pick it up in in chapter 4, verse 7, where Peter writes this, the end of all things is near. Jesus has been resurrected. You're living in the last stage of God's great redemptive plan. And so he gives them four specific pieces of advice. Number one, therefore, be alert and sober mind so that you may pray. Number two, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Number three, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Number four, each of you should use whatever gift you receive to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And he goes on to make some other comments and for the sake of time, I'll keep moving. So as we come to a close this morning, some quick comments about those four very practical encouragements. And I'd love you to think about what this looks like for you as part of the Humeridge community. Four ways that you can, in practical ways, that you can encourage one another and help one another to learn the way of Jesus in uncertain times in 2024. First, he says, be alert and sober minds so that you may pray. Prayer is not some sort of blank slate for Peter, you know, sitting with an empty mind, cross-legged out there at the Japanese gardens. No, prayer is a thoughtful, purposeful, intelligent activity that addresses the real frontline challenges of fellow exiles. The real challenges. When you're in your home groups, it's a great time for those of you who have that opportunity to share the reality of what day-to-day life is like for you so you can pray intelligently for one another. Second point, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Love one another deeply and earnestly, not in that superficial social media warm and fuzzy sort of way. Focus on unity, on building deep relationships. Try and put aside those personal slights and insults. Stop replaying those hurtful incidents over and over in your minds. 
Do your best to move on from the great church split of 1954. Hey? Love covers a multitude of sins. And these days, the thing is, when we, when things go pear-shaped, we just go to another church. But in Asia Minor, the future of the church depended on them getting on, loving and forgiving one another, because guess what? Next week, that people you're not, person you're not getting on with, church is going to be in their home. It seems that Peter's advice was taken seriously because scholars call this area of Asia Minor the, minor, the cradle of Christianity because of the significant number of church leaders who emerged from this area. I better keep going. Thirdly, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Peter's probably urging them to look after travelling fellow believers who needed some overnight accommodation. They didn't have booking.com back then. But he's also expecting them to offer up their homes for the weekly meetings, even though that may well have provided further opportunities for unwanted attention and persecution because back then, cheek to jowl, people knew what was going on in your home. Everybody's business was everybody's business. And don't grumble about it, says Peter. Oh, no, we've got to have home group at our place tonight. Oh, I'm sick of catching up for coffee with Sarah. Seriously? No, be generous. Be open-hearted in your hospitality. What is that going to look like for you in 2024? My observation is that you already do this so well at Hume Ridge, but please keep it up. Model it for the rest of us. Keep looking for opportunities to catch up and encourage your fellow exiles. Listen to their stories. Pray intelligently for them and cheer them on. And then finally... Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Serve one another. And Peter's example of serving is speaking in this passage. And that could be everything from being on a platform to having a conversation out there in the foyer later. Make sure that your speaking is shaped by God's words, he says. And serve not in your own strength, but in God's power and give him the glory. Got to tell you, that's a personal challenge for me. I wonder how God has gifted you to serve this faith community. And how will you develop and express that gift in 2024? You know, from what I've seen, servant heartedness is a hallmark of the Humeridge community. I was here a few weeks ago to pick up the grandkids after the recent church camp. And those of you involved will know that a bus or two broke down. And after three tiring days of sun, surf and sound, sand, some very exhausted young people coming home much later than they thought came, were spilling out of the bus on the late Sunday evening. Now, if I'd been in that situation, my first instinct, I have to tell you, would be to stand back, grab my gear as soon as I'd spotted it and head for home. But no... Not humorous young people. They formed a train. How exciting. A train is a long line of young people from the bus, luggage bays to the foyer and you pass the luggage along this line of willing hands to the foyer so you get it done efficiently and everybody's gear is out and on display before mine gets out. 
Friends, that sort of stuff does not happen by accident. When I asked my grandson Xander what the camp talks were about, I thought I'd get a typical one-word teenage response, particularly when they're tired, sunburnt, and the rest of it. But I actually got five words. Five. Five precious words. Take the number two position. I didn't actually need any more words. I knew exactly what he meant because I'd actually just seen that in action. Remember, please, your service here does not need to be grand. You don't need to be standing up here if you think this is grand. Jesus tells us that something as simple as offering somebody a cup of water is service. Or standing in line to unpack the luggage when you really want to go home and catch us some sleep. So, friends, as we head into 2024, maybe these are some resolutions that we can take seriously. Remember your calling. Put that right up there, who you are in Christ. Understand your identity as an exile, as a foreigner. Yet this is not our home, but we are called not to be so homesick that we neglect what God wants us to do here. Be thoughtful about your witness, the people you meet and greet on your front lines. And love and serve these people, your fellow exiles, because you will model the love of Jesus to a community around you. Peter has a prayer almost at the end of his letter, and it seems to me an appropriate thing to use as we close today. Let's pray. In the words of Peter, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks.